0: bodies in the bayous a podcast by morgan kelly and gretchen scanlon presents season 4 iola eroding justice
1: episode 4 david cantrell
0: In preparing for this podcast we have sent open records requests for the Betty Cantrell case to the KBI and also the Iola Police Department. We have done this in order to give our listeners a better understanding and timeline of events that happened and the times in which they happened. The KBI and the Iola Police have denied those requests. There have been many key information in those files that allowed them to quickly rule out or in a person or persons of interest who could have been involved in these murders. Since we were unable to get to these documents, we cannot do that. We know today that in homicide cases where women are murdered, that in over 50% of those cases, it is the intimate partner that takes their life. In cases where there is domestic or sexual violence in the home, that likelihood increases to 80%. With that information, we have to take a deeper look into David Kentrell, who was Betty Kentrell's husband when she was killed. Police ruled him out as a suspect in his wife's case almost immediately. As a matter of fact, it was within hours of her car being discovered. A year after the murders, police gave an interview to a true crime magazine where they described him as an honest working husband who wanted his wife to stop working and stay home with the children. David was born on April 14, 1929 in Wellston, Oklahoma to James and Anna Cantrell. He was one of seven children. The family all worked on a farm in order to, to provide for the household. The family moved to Keener, Arkansas when David was young. David was a veteran serving in the army for a year from 1951 to 1952. While he was enlisted, he was trained to become a mechanic which would also become how he would support his family. The same year that David left the army at 27 years old is when he met Kathleen Cucho, his first wife. Kathleen was a vibrant 19 year old young woman. Kathleen was raised in Kansas City by her mother, June Ethel. Her father was killed when she was 15 years old. He was killed in an accident The incident happened when a tractor trailer slammed into the car that he was driving. Kathleen became pregnant shortly after his death. Kathleen gave birth to a daughter that she named Bora. Not long after David and Kathleen started dating, she became pregnant with his child. David and Kathleen married on August 15th, 1956. The couple moved to Iola where David got a job at Dale Witchman Ford, where he worked as a mechanic. They moved around Iola, living at 911 East Madison, then 221 South 3rd, and lastly at 117 Kentucky Street. Their daughter Paula was born on November 12, 1956. Sadly, she only lived one day. Three years later, David and Kathleen welcomed daughter Sherry. Kathleen died on June 20, 1961. The newspapers at the time reported that Kathleen had battled a short illness. David Cantrell had lost his wife and had become the sole caregiver of the two young girls, raising them on his own with the help of nannies and housekeepers. He had several housekeepers over the years. By 1964, David began to advertise for a live-in housekeeper slash nanny to take care of the children. A woman named Ula May Hutton took the position to help with Laura and Sherry. She would stay the longest to help David. Ula's children were grown, and during this time, she is also divorcing her husband, John. Ula and John had only been married for about a year. Later, the divorce was dismissed. Ula had previously taken care of an elderly woman in her home, so it would have been a natural fit for her to become the housekeeper or caregiver for the children. David and Betty were introduced to each other through a mutual friend. Betty was suffering from the loss of her first marriage to Lauren Duffield. The reality of becoming a single mother and the betrayal of her husband was overwhelming to her at that time. David and Betty married on September 14, 1964. When Betty and David married a few years after the death of his first wife, their families blended together. David with his daughters, Sherry and Laura, and Betty with her son Robert. We began researching what happened to the girls and Robert after the death of Betty. There we found many references to Sherry over the years, going to school in Iola, growing up to, into a young woman, and getting married. In David Kentrell's obituary, it mentions that he has one living daughter and one deceased. This was strange as we knew that David Kentrell would have had a total of three daughters laura sherry and paula who passed away only a day after she was born so had the family forgotten to include paula in the obituary or were they leaving laura out of it the obituary and if so what happened to laura we couldn't find a reference of laura graduating from iola high school when we asked anyone who knew david Kentrell at the time they would mention his daughter sherry and so we would ask them what about his da- daughter laura And most people would say, I didn't know he had another daughter. There was little to no reference of Laura after Betty's death. To that point, we also found no reference of Robert after Betty's death either. So now we had another mystery of what happened to him. So began the great search of what happened to Laura. It took a little time and a little digging, but we finally contacted Laura. She was pretty surprised to hear from us. It was like opening a wound long since closed and looking at a past behind her that we didn't think she wanted to explore. Most of what she had wrote to us came as a shock. Laura never knew who her real father was. She had never met him and he definitely was not in the picture. When her mother met and married David Cantrell, Laura was only three years old and so David became her father and Laura began using the last name Cantrell. Their marriage was not all rainbows and sunshine. David Cantrell's stepdaughter Laura, Kathleen's oldest daughter, did not witness a beautiful love story of two people finding themselves after unbelievable tragedy. She wrote to us and had a different story to tell. It is very difficult to tell someone else's story, to tell someone else's truth, We are hoping that we can do justice for her. What Laura went through, no young child should have to endure. The rest of the story that we are going to bring to you is from Laura's own words shared from conversations that we have had.
1: Laura says, the day my mother died, she woke up early in the morning. David wanted to go fishing, so he took some, so she took some meds and laid down early. David tried to wake her up all day. He tried a couple of different times, but he couldn't get her to wake up. But finally, it was getting dark outside, and he called the doctor. They sent an ambulance. I didn't know what was wrong with my mom. I know that she had surgery on one of her legs when she was young. She had a slight limp. I know that she was in the hospital a few times. Sherry was a difficult baby. She cried constantly and had to be walked around by my mom. My mom could not even sit her down to cook. I'm sure this was stressful, beyond stressful. David didn't help. The ambulance went to the Iola hospital. They said they couldn't do anything for her, so they took her to Kansas City where she died. We don't know if it was an accident or on purpose. There were signs that were weird. We knew she was not happy. She had prescription drugs that were prescribed to her. I don't know what they were for, but the relationship between the two of them was not good. I believe David had a hand in killing my mother. Laura continues to say, David was mean. He liked to chase women. Some people who were close to him were afraid of him. David and Betty did not have a lot to do with people in the neighborhood. A woman living on the corner once told me that she didn't like him because the bird dog that he kept in the backyard kept getting out and he would beat the dog severely. He later put up an electric fence to keep it in the yard. The neighbor lady didn't like this and the other neighbors weren't big fans of his either. David was popular at work, he had several good friends there, including several friends from the local police department who would bring their patrol cars to be worked on by him. David began abusing me when I was a young girl. At one point, Betty contacted a doctor to try to find out if it was normal for David to be doing this to me. When I was about 12, I tried to kill myself. They called the doctor and all he told them was just to watch after me. At that point, David got even more abusive. So one night I ran away to my best friend's house. My friend's house was out in the country, so I was able to stay there and nobody noticed. But after about three days of staying there, my friend's mom decided she needed to go to town and get something from the store. So we went with her, and that's when David found out where I was. So they sent the sheriff out to get me. I told the sheriff what was going on, that David was abusing me, but David told him he wouldn't do that. David said, if I did not come home, I would have to go to live where the bad kids lived. So I went home. Somebody must have done something about it because we ended up going in front of a judge. I told the judge what happened to me, but David denied it. They asked me about other relatives that I could go and stay with anywhere else. And I told them about my grandmother, Kathleen's mother. Betty had to take me to visit a social worker, and the first time we went to the social worker, the social worker asked me if I could go home, if I would be good there, and Betty said I could go home and wait there until my grandmother could arrange to take me. I agreed to go home. I got in the car with Betty and we headed toward the home, but Betty turned around. She went back to the social worker's office. She pushed me into the office in front of everyone and said, take her. I don't want her. So they found me someplace to go until my grandmother could get there. It was with an old babysitter. When my grandmother arrived, she picked up my things from the house, which amounted to Just basically a hairbrush and a trash bag full of clothes. We left there a few weeks before Betty was killed. David tried to keep in touch with me, but my grandmother was very protective. Later, I heard that David spread rumors about me, saying that I had gotten pregnant or run off with some boy. David got married again. She was an old woman, kind of old-fashioned. She died of cancer. I think. I'm not sure. I don't know. I was in town one time, and somebody pointed out to me that he had gotten married again. I never met his last wife. Eventually, I married, started my own family, made a success out of my life, and managed to finally find some happiness. To say that I wasn't haunted by my past wouldn't be true.
0: Laura mentioned that David Cantrell had married again after Betty's death. David marries Koita Alice Richardson during the trial of the man who was accused of murdering Betty. They married July 31st, 1971. Koita would die on February 25th, 1978, when she was only 48 years old. She and David lived in Iola at 702 East Jackson Street. Her obituary stated that she had been in failing health since January of 1976. Coita is buried in Arkansas. On April 25, 1979, just a little over a year after Coita's passing, David would marry yet again to a woman named Marjorie Louise Feld-Turner. Marjorie is the daughter of Glenn and Faye Feld. She grew up in the Iola, Neosha Falls area. When she married her first husband, Orville Turner, they made their home in La Harp. He died in 1973. David and Marjorie made their home also in the Iowa area until 1983, when the couple moved to Harrison, Arkansas, where David had family. He died on February 3, 1995. Marjorie would would return to Iowa after his death, where she passed away in t- 2014. David is buried next to Quita in Arkansas. Marjorie is buried in Highland Cemetery in Iowa.
1: So now enters the discussion part of the episode.
0: Okay, Gretchen, So I think where we're, uh, we're going to get started today is with a few questions um, that I'm going to uh, ask you that our listeners might be curious about. So um, earlier in the episode, we talked about David Cantrell's uh, housekeeper, Ula Hutton. And our listeners are probably going to wonder if she is related to Sally Hutton's family.
1: So, as far as I could tell by doing genealogical research, um, I don't find any connection between Eula Hutton's husband John to Sally Hutton's family. Um, you know, it may be farther back than one or two generations, and so they may be like a distant cousin. But I didn't find any like immediate connection to john and sally's family so it's not like he's an uncle or something like that um and since Yula is married to him um there's no she's not a relative in that way she could possibly be a, a distant relative by marriage and i just haven't tracked down the connection but not an immediate relative Mm-hmm. And then another thing our our listeners are probably gonna be wondering about
0: is the status of Betty Cantrell's case. And, you know, is there was there any DNA tested? You know, um
1: just probably some basic questions with with what her status of her case is. So Betty Cantrell's case is technically closed and it would have been closed in nineteen seventy one when they um pursued legal charges against their main suspect and at that that point that case was no longer investigated by any agency now from what i understand the case had been pulled occasionally and looked at by law enforcement agencies um in reference to you know the timing with it with the hutton case but it was it was never reopened so it continually was closed um and not investigated as in they were looking for a different suspect Uh, with that being said and knowing that my belief is that that case has never been that dna testing has never been done in that case because they would need an open case in order to do that so Mm -hmm. um since they didn't have an open case they didn't move forward with any dna testing and what we do know through asking for open records requests in her case and being denied we do know that there are things in the file um like water from her lungs that type of thing um so there may be a possibility that there would be material there that could be dna tested but not that has right And then
0: you know we briefly talked also about kind of the quest for you know open records with this and you know how it's kind of hard to get that timeline together with suspects who could be ruled in who could be ruled out um so i think this is kind of the time that we can clear the air about the the records maybe some of the kbi letters that we've received back and forth
1: So our first initial contact with the um, asking for records was to ask for records through the um, Allen County Court, um, because there was a criminal prosecution that we'll get to in later episodes. Um, So we did request those documents and we did receive a small amount of documents from that request. Unfortunately, the transcripts of the court proceeding are lost or you know not preserved or something but th- they're not available you know the the allen county courts were incredibly gracious in helping us locate the records um and sending emails back and forth and and discussions and you know they're just not there um whether or not they could be located through some other source I don't know but they're not they're not there um and then the next request that we uh went was to request actually both Sally's case file um Sally Hutton case file and Betty Cantrell's case file from the KBI with Sally Hutton's case we were told that that is an open and active investigation and therefore no files would be released we did put in a request to the kbi to know who the investigator was on that case and if we could contact that investigator um we were told that that knowing who the investigator was was not a part of public record and so therefore we could not know that but that they would pass our information on to whoever that investigator was um that certainly right but when that's a tough thing Mm -hmm. because for us if we don't have information about who the investigator was so that i can't like call up the investigator i'm not saying necessarily call up the investigator and and ask them a ton of questions which i probably would but um what happens if somebody brings us information And we need to take that information forward to the KBI. We don't have contact person for that, you know, or if, as our listeners are out there, if one of them has information because we don't have an investigator, um, I can't say, Hey, if you have information or you have a tip on this case, please contact this investigator through such and such an email or phone number or whatever that. That's difficult, you know, Um, and it's not something that I really understand.
0: Yeah, it's it's really hard for me to understand and, and really accept because through talking with Carolyn, in Sally's case, they're not contacting her. You know, they're not letting her know once a year who the new investigator is. And that is actually her right as a victim in this case. Yes. You know, um, also the other problem that I truly have with this is this is a case that is over 50 years old and I really don't see the point of keeping it that close to the chest when it doesn't seem that it is
1: very active. Right, because I think that, you know, we've seen podcasters help solve cases that are older, you know, um, with bits of information by going through to the public and asking for information and help. And by no means am I saying that you shouldn't come forward with any information that you have. If you do have information in the Sally Hutton case, I would encourage you to contact the KBI for they have a tip line. Um, We have had people who have contacted that tip line. Uh, It's not incredibly responsive, but again, I think it's very important. Justice needs to be done in this case. So please don't hold back because of this. It's just, it's frustrating. It's frustrating for us. And then, in Betty Cantrell's case, so Betty Cantrell's case, we did contact the KBI. we asked for the records. We were told that there were records. Um, we submitted the fee to have those records researched um, and for us, that's a bit of money. You know, we're a small podcast we we make very little money on the podcast, so we have to pull from our own money from jobs you know from our full time jobs in order to pay for those fees so we paid for those fees um and then we were contacted back there was a delay um in the records being reviewed and so we waited another 30 days and then we were contacted back and told that be- the files had been reviewed and those files were investigation documents and would not be released to us mm-hmm.
0: and and that being said they didn't really specify what they were in being investigated for you know we always are i kind of lean towards you know is it because of sally's case
1: well i think what legally the the legal definition of any files held by any law enforcement agency can be referred to as investigated documents and are possibly not allowed uh, they have the right to say that they're not releasing them based on the fact that their investigation documents because for several reasons so they can say that it's um because it because they feel like the public would be harmed by the information that's in there because the family um might be harmed by the information that's in there because suspects might be harmed by basically the information that's in there and there are a few more reasons that they can use um and they don't actually have to give us the full answer um we can and i believe we have requested that answer haven't gotten quite um what we're looking for there um but you know they they have that they have that ability it's just unfortunate um so, the next step was to contact the Iola Police Department, which I was surprised because when I've contacted the Iola Sheriff's Department, they have told us that they have no files on Sally Hutton's case. But when you contact the Iola Police Department, they do have files on Betty Hutton's case that are in their possession um And they said if the KBI did not have um, a problem with us, you know, gave us permission, that they would release the files to us. Mm -hmm. And so we wrote to the KBI asking the KBI um, if the Iola Police Department had these records that we're looking to obtain, could they release those records to us without the KBI having a problem? And the KBI said, they have no jurisdiction over anybody else's records. Um, and so it is up to the sheriff's department, I mean the police department to choose what they would do with their own records, um, and that they would not hinder us in receiving those records in any way from the police department. Mm-hmm. So we did inform the police department about that, um, and said, you know, we would Really like to get those records so that we can put together the most complete information that we can possibly put out there with this. Um, And the um, police department basically backed up a little bit and said, because the KBI did not say yes, the Iowa Police Department can release these records that the KBI can't say that, but because they didn't say that, then the Iola Police Department is not releasing the records. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of a long, sorry, I mean, we still have tiny bits of hope that maybe, you know, they will reconsider that decision, but um, that's where we are at this point.
0: It's very frustrating, and, you know, we always... Like you said we always have that hope and then we're like okay what's the next avenue which we do have something that we think might work um who knows right
1: yeah i mean it's difficult because you know when we were looking at preparing this episode today one of the clear things that we wanted to put out there was a very clear timeline of when david cantrell was contacted by the Iola Police Department about the fact that his wife was missing. And, and then what kind of happened next for David, you know? So was it, did they immediately go from the diner and contact him? Did they immediately pick up the, the phone and contact him? Did the owner of the diner pick up the phone and ever contact him? Those are things that would have possibly been in the court transcripts because they would have been testified to right um but because the transcripts are missing which clearly the transcripts would have qualified for an open records request um, but because the transcripts are missing we're trying to recreate some of this using documents that are out there and this is a speed bump so, sometimes, when we're putting out this information for you, you know when we don't have some of those answers that would be helpful for you as you're look, kind of looking into this and listening to this and thinking there are some strange things that are going on here. we just at this point can't get a hold of them right,
0: so moving on from that, yeah, that was a lot. Sorry yeah, no, I mean, it is a lot, and it's it's very frustrating uh-huh. um one thing i did want to just kind of talk briefly about is the fact of how many times david has been married how he manages to pretty quickly turn around a new relationship yeah so some
1: of that um it definitely does appear to be odd um especially you know thinking that um He apparently was quite the ladies man, Um, you would think that he wouldn't want to be tied down. But then other times I think, you know, here is somebody who was single again after Betty and then raising a small child. And so it might have been the easiest way to have her have somebody in the home. Mm -hmm. Um, And... And so that's that can be some of that too, is you know not all decisions are made on rainbows sunshines, and flowers you know and and love, but sometimes it's also I need to have a wife because mm-hmm. I'm raising a small child, right, but David is surrounded by tragedy yeah it's it's i mean for one person, that's a lot. So there's always the tendency when you look at that to say, is there something else going on? And I think that's kind of where I'm gonna leave it. For now. Yeah. Um, One more thing I did wanna just uh, apologize to Carolyn Hutton. Um... Yeah, unfortunately, um, you know, down here in the South, They pronounced carolyn hutton's mother's name elise but um her name was actually elsie Mm -hmm. so after a phone call with her last week you know
0: uh just did want her to know that we note that and moving forward we will
1: refer to her as as elsie again i'm sorry about that you know when we were when we were reading it over a couple different times you know we um didn't quite pick up on on our mistake there and then you know the the other thing that's just recently came up with the Facebook post, Carolyn has talked, um, for many years about how her mother had told her that Sally was babysitting for David Cantrell. And, um, We've gone back and forth about that, trying to figure out if any of um Sally's friends could help us out, and, you know, when did that happen? Um, you know, we did talk to Laura about did she remember anything like that happening? she doesn't remember babysitters in the home, which when you have an older teenage daughter, that does to me make sense. But then once Laura left, then maybe there was the need for babysitters with with Betty working. And so maybe Sally did babysit for her. You know, we continue to try to see if we can get more information on the babysitting. Like,
0: or, you know, if, if somebody that's listening out there can confirm it, yeah. please reach out to us
1: but what was interesting this week was that somebody did reach out and say that they had babysat also for and we're not going to release her name she hasn't come forward to do an interview or anything like that so i think you know at this point we'll just say that we have had somebody reach out and say that they did babysit for betty during that time period and even babysat um while there was a search on for her being missing and so that does confirm that betty and sally were using babysitters mm-hmm. and so i mean not. i'm sorry. sorry i think i said sally there that david and betty were using um babysitters so that you know if anybody else has any more information on the babysitting i think this is this is very important um trying to make some of this connect is is incredibly important um them. And lastly, you know, we just want to thank Laura uh,
0: for sharing her story with us. We know it is a very difficult story, you know, to tell, and we really just do appreciate you coming forward with what
1: you had. And Yeah, we really appreciate it. Thank you.
0: Thanks everyone for joining us today. We want to give a special thanks to the Iola community for all their help and support in making this season possible. Special thanks to Angela Henry, our local host. Bodies in the Bayous is an independent podcast produced and created by Gretchen Scanlon and Morgan Kelly. Research resources include the Iola Register, the Wichita Eagle and the Parsons Sun. Music provided by Spotify. Technical assistance by Emma Kelly. Studio assistance by Katherine Alvarez. If you have any questions or a tip about this case, email us at bodiesinbayous@hotmail.com. at hotmail.com. Follow us on Facebook at Bodies in the Bayous. We'd love to hear from you. Please leave us a review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Special thanks to the Hutton and Cantrell families for their support. Our ultimate goal is for these families to have some answers. If you have messages of support, we are happy to pass them on to the family if you email us at bodiesandbayous at hotmail.com.